I am one who really enjoys a good Christmas story. Uh, and you know what? So many Christmas stories revolve around coming home. Uh, sometimes they'll focus on one going to a stranger's house for Christmas, but being made to feel at home. Sometimes they'll focus on what happens at home. But what we discover in so many of these stories that the concept of home is central to who we are. We all want to feel at home. Years ago, somebody gave us this kind of a coffee table book. And it was full of Christmas stories. Christmas stories by many different authors. I believe the title of the coffee table book was Christmas by the Hearth. And uh, it was wonderful to read those stories. Some of them would leave us laughing. Some of them would have all of us reaching up to, to wipe a tear from our eyes. But one thing that wove its way through every story was this concept that there was a unique expression in these Christmas stories of love and home. There's one story that stands out to me. Maybe it's because I spent a bunch of years being a youth pastor. Uh, and I know I've told it to you before. In fact, I told it to you or told parts of it to you in 2018. I went back and checked my notes. So I apologize right now for the repeat, but it's just such a great story. I will only summarize. The story was entitled, Kashara's Gift. And the story told about this young girl named Kashara, an African-American girl who was in high school, who was in a high school that was sharply divided between economic lines. So at one point in time, Kashara's dad had a phenomenal job, and she was in the in crowd. But there was an auto accident, her dad was injured, he was not able to work, the job that her mother found was not able to maintain the lifestyle they had had, and all of a sudden they lost their big house, they went to a little smaller house, and she went from being a front door kid, and those were the in crowd. The in crowd were front door kids. The front doors of this iconic high school, red brick, big building, were big, tall oak doors. And you could park your car in the parking lot and walk through the oak doors. You were a front door kid. But if you didn't have that kind of money, you were a back door kid. And the back doors walked through a little alleyway, sort of, and there was graffiti on the wall. And Kashara went from being a front door kid to a back door kid. Now, in Kashara's school, they did this thing in your whatever class you were in, you would do a, uh, a secret pal. And the last three days of Christmas were the days that the secret pals revealed their gifts. And typically, it seemed rigged, but the kids were okay with it. The front door kids seemed to always draw front door kid names. And the back door kids seemed to always draw back door kid names. Well, the back door kids just didn't do it, but the front door kids got into it. But on this day, Kashara reaches into the bag and pulls out the name of Heather Claremont. Heather Claremont was the most popular girl in the entire school. And now Kashara was expected 
to be her secret pal for three days to give her some kind of special gift for three days and she was at her wit's end. But she took the challenge and she decided to do something completely out of the box. So she goes home and she makes a homemade card. Now, this will tell you the age of the story, out of magazine cutouts. How many of us have magazines laying around the house anymore? But back in the day. And so she took and she made this card and she took these magazine cutouts and she took pictures, cut out pictures of scenery, pictures of beautiful forests, things like that. And the card said this, wishing you all the gifts you could never buy for yourself this Christmas. Hoping with you your secret pal. Now, at this school, when it came to lunch, the front door kids sat on the main floor in the cafeteria or the commons, and the back door kids would all hang around at the balcony up above. So Kashara places herself at the balcony, and she watches Heather open the gift, and she had cut out words and everything, and, and one, of her, one of Heather's friends went, ah, it's a kidnapping note, you know, <laughs> and, 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 but she watched her take the card and fold it and just kind of hold it. Well, day two comes around. What is she going to do for day two? Day two, she stops by the, the donut shop, the bakery on the way home, and she gets a bunch of stale breadcrumbs and a stale donut. And on day two, she takes those and puts them into a paper bag, and she writes another note on a card, and it says this, enjoy the simple things in life. Take your best friend to feed the ducks. Think about all you've been blessed with. And once again, the the reaction is like, oh, this is different. And boy, she has everybody wondering who this is. Well, the last day comes. The last day is supposed to be the big reveal. It's supposed to be the day that you now know who your secret pal is. And uh, Kashara is like at the, at the end of her creative juices. And, and finally she decides what she'll do. And she grabs all the magazine again. And she begins to look for pictures that kind of reflect scenes from the high school. That reflect scenes from the kids around. And so she puts this all together, and she puts it in a, uh, a card, and it's given to Heather. And, and all, when she opens it, all her friends gather around. And they'll look at a picture, and they will just roar with laughter. Kashar is up on the balcony watching us. They look at another one. Oh, yes, that's so good. And they were just enjoying this. And, and finally, finally, Heather just stands up with the booklet in her hand. And she demands, who did this? Who did this? Kashara's standing at the balcony, at the banister there, frozen at the railing. And her friend, who's supposed to be her best friend, kind of points at her and backs away. Let me pick it up here just for a few sentences. Heather walked up the stairs where Kashara was. No one, no one has ever had the guts to give gifts like you have this week. I'm sorry, I said, unable to look her in the eye. It's just that I knew you were expecting something, but I didn't have the money to get you anything. 
Heather went on as though I hadn't said a thing. This book? She held out the page with the magazine cutouts and the phrases pasted all over. Is the funniest thing I've ever read. You have caught all my friends perfectly in this story. More importantly, you taught me that the best gifts don't have to cost a lot of money. Heather took my chin in her hand and pulled it up so she could look at me. She opened her mouth to say something, then hugged me. A real hug that a friend would give. And startled, I could not hug her back. To this day, I don't understand what happened that week. But now the doors at the high school are open for everyone. There are no more front door kids or back door kids. We are all just friends. Good Christmas stories have a way of reminding us about what is most important in life. Good Christmas stories seem to build a bridge of relationship in which ultimately our differences are seen not as dividing lines but as a a kaleidoscope of characteristics that make everyone all the richer. Good Christmas stories truly reflect the love and unity and ideals that we think of when we think of what home should be. And I think that characterizes the best Christmas story of the creator of the universe being born to a humble, poor couple and laid in a manger. Over the past few weeks, we've invited you to come home. Our true relationship we've discovered is that home is in our true relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and when we have that and we live in harmony with the Holy Spirit, we have that sense of home, that sense of belonging, that sense of meaning that God can only give. We've invited you over the past few weeks to come home to rest. We've invited you to come home to hope. Last week we invited you to come home to acceptance. And today, I want to invite you to come home to love. Take your Bibles, if you have them this morning, and turn to 1 John. I know it's not a Christmas passage. I've purposely not chosen traditional Christmas passages for this series. Turn to 1 John and go to chapter 4 of 1 John. Find yourself at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 and listen As I read, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This then is This is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He has given us his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I think no other passage in Scripture helps us understand what it means to come home in love. Now, in the verses that I just read for you, the word love is used some 25 times. And I think if we're going to understand this passage, we need to understand what am I talking about when I say love? Because we use that word everywhere. You know, I, I love pizza. I, I love, and you put in an athlete, athletic team. I, you know, I, I love my truck, you know, whatever you could say. So we use it all the time. And so, and I don't often do this, but I want you to know the word that's translated love is a word that's familiar if you if you've grown up in any sort of a Christian environment, it's, it's the Greek word agape. And you may have heard someone say it's the highest form of love. And, and I think the way it seems to be consistently used in the New Testament would give it this status. Uh, it's often used interchangeably with another word that we could get our word brotherly love from. The word Philadelphia is supposedly to be the city of brotherly love. Phileo is the, that Greek word. And, and, and yet, in the New Testament, the word that we have translated love in this passage, it's consistently used to describe God's love for you and me. So what we have reflected here is a type of love that is tied to faith and righteousness and grace of all those who are loved by God. You can't read the first four verses of this, chat, of this section without getting one clear fact. You and I are undeserving recipients of God's love. He says this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Uh, we are to love one another, and why? Because God is the source of all love. We are to love one another. Why? Because it reflects that we're truly children of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. And God makes and John makes this very very powerful statement. He says God is love. I mean, that is as definitive as you can get. And it's you can easily gloss over that and just kind of skip it, but it is a a very important statement. It's a statement that speaks to the primary character of who God is. God is love. 
everything God does or has done or will do is rooted in the fact of his love. He created in love. He reigns in love. He will judge, believe it or not, in love. Everything God does is from the standpoint of love. So the person who doesn't love reveals that they have no experiential or relational knowledge with God. And that brings me to the first thing I want you to just remember this morning. I want you to remember that welcoming love initiates. I'm using the term welcoming as an adjective for love because for me it reflects the kind of love that is pure, that is inviting, that is safe. Welcoming love has no conditions. Welcoming love has no maneuvering or manipulations. God initiated love because love is his nature and we respond to that love. God says, welcome home. Welcome home into relationship with me. God initiated that love, and and, and John says he sent his one and only son into the world for us so that we could live. God loved, and we did nothing to earn that love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You see, doing anything to earn that love, doing anything to to try to make God love us would then not make it a pure love. God sent his son. I think of that often. Charlene and I have one son. We have two really great sons-in-law, but we have one son. And we love our son. And yet, and you know what? I love a lot of other people, truly and really. I'm not sure I could bring myself to sacrifice my son for someone else. I, I, I don't know how, that, that love to me is, a, is far deeper than what I can do. But God did. He sent his son. It was a loving act. He sent him to be the atoning sacrifice. We're going to celebrate communion in a few moments. And that reminds us of that atoning sacrifice. Through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, through the shed blood of Christ, our sins were covered. And I know, and I, because I, we can all be there. I don't deserve that. No, none of us do. That's the amazing love of God. We don't deserve it. He did it. He initiated Because welcoming love initiates. And and that kind of love from God requires a response. You know, uh, this uh, we're all thinking about gifts. Okay, we were last weekend we were out in Iowa, took gifts for our kids uh, and our grandkids, and I got now I got more gifts sitting on the couch at home that we're gonna go to Elgin next week and and all and around your Christmas tree at home, there's gifts piling up slowly but surely. And, and and you know, I've said this before, but a gift serves no purpose if it's never opened. A gift does not serve its purpose if it's never open. It may stay there, it may be pretty, you may put it in a closet, you know, but it hasn't served its purpose yet. If you leave the gift under the tree, if you take it to your room and never open it, you have not fully received the gift. 
I think we might have a tendency sometimes to do that with Jesus. I'm afraid so too often we leave the baby Jesus in the manger. We don't explore who he is. We don't receive the gift of forgiveness. We don't, by faith, open our heart and receive his offer of salvation. Don't leave God's gift wrapped under the tree. God is saying to each of us, no, really, go ahead, open it. No, open it now. Well, John isn't done yet. He's not done for a long shot. We come to verse 11. John picks it up. He says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Sometimes when we open a gift, we are blown away, aren't we? Especially as we grow older, and we understand the real cost of a gift. You know, there's a commercial I kind of enjoy right now, and it's, it's, it's a, a theme of commercials that's out there. And it's a couple, they're out in the snow, and the man says to the woman, hey, I got you something special this Christmas, and he whistles, and this beautiful dog, this puppy, comes running through the snow. And then she goes, oh, I got you something, this, something for Christmas this year, too. And she whistles, and this great big old Chevy or GMC Sierra pickup truck comes bounding through the snow. And the guy goes up, and he leans over the hood, and he's hugging it, you know. And, and at the end of the one commercial, they always do a lengthy one, then they shorten it. But at the end of the lengthy one, she's sitting in the, on the tailgate of the truck with her puppy saying, we'll give him a moment, you know. And, and, all. and I think those are fun commercials and all, but I'm going to tell you right now, if next Sunday morning I wake my wife up and say, hey, come with me, and I walk her out to the driveway, and there is a shiny new Lexus there with a bow on it, with her name on it. First thing that's going to happen is she's going to look at me and maybe punch me in the arm and go, how do we afford this? What did, how long is it going to take to pay this off? Where Did you rob a bank? <laughs> she's aware of the cost. But you know what? That, that in a one way illustrates our second point for today. Welcoming love is costly. And John invites us to share in the process. John says, if this is how God loved us, this is how we ought to love one another. If God initiated love to us in such a way that it cost him, I need to ask myself, am I willing to live in any way sacrificially for others? You see, the best way I can show someone else in this world what God looks like is to live a, a life that is characterized by selfless love. And that is easy to say and hard to do. It's hard to be selfless. It's hard to even let others be selfless and receive from them. Do you, have you thought about what the most worn out phrase at Christmas time is? Somebody gets surprised by a gift by a friend and what do they say? <gasps> but I didn't get you anything. You know what? It's okay to receive a gift and not necessarily having got someone else because then it just becomes reciprocation. Love is in giving and love costs. And John points out, you and I can't get God anything. Think about that. You can't get God anything. He's the creator of the universe. 
If he needs it, he makes it. (laughs) He speaks it. But we can do this. The best gift we can give to God is to live a life that reflects what he's already done for us. Verses 13 through 16 answer a question. How do I know? How do I know I'm really part of God's family? How can I know that God really loves me? What assurance do I have? In verse 13, John says, This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He's given us His Spirit. First and foremost, the Spirit of God is given to us. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is this spiritual transaction that takes place and the Spirit of God actually resides in you. And you say, how do I know He's there? He guides you. He directs you. He assures you. He comforts you. He brings other people into your life at the right moment to walk with you. But John goes on. He said, we've seen and testified that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And and, and how do I know? Well, when I acknowledge by faith that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world, then I enter into and I can depend on God's love. And that's not just to acknowledge isn't some mental assent. It's actually to declare. It's, it's a legal sense in which two people actually make a declaration of an agreement and they sign it. It's that idea. It means that I am agreeing with God what his word says about Jesus. And I'm accepting fully the claims of Jesus. And then I'm trusting in God's love. Love is costly. Welcoming love is costly. I imagine in the next few weeks somebody's going to produce the study. They come out once every year or two. And they they detail what it costs to rear a child in the current climate from birth through college. And it blows your mind. Here's one reason I never paid attention to those things. When you act in love, you don't sit and count the cost. I have no clue what my three kids cost me. I just know we did what we had to do in the moment because we loved them and we provided for them. I have a better cost about what my grandkids are costing my retirement. No, I don't. <laughs> you just give. You just do what you need to do at the time. You don't. Love is costly, but you don't count the cost. You just do what you need to do. You know, as parents and grandparents, there are many, many ways we've been able to show love to our grandchildren and our children. And I know it's cost us time. I know it's cost us energy. I know it's cost us money. But I haven't looked back at any point. I haven't looked back, wish I wouldn't have done that. That cost me too much. No, I have no regrets in that regard. I have lots of regrets, but not in that regard. Love costs, but the one who initiates love doesn't count or regret the cost. But then John keeps going. We get to verse uh, 16. He says, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And then he says it again. God is love. And then he talks about whoever lives in love, lives in God and God in them. 
This is how love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. We are to reflect Jesus. We are to live our lives as Jesus did. How did Jesus live his life? Well, he told us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think the point that John starts making here is welcoming love is safe. God is love. It's his nature. It's his character. It's what defines him. If you live in love, God is living in you as well. His his nature becomes your nature. As you understand God's love, you grow and you understand God's love is safe. In a healthy, loving relationship, there is a consistent and underlying reality of security and safety. When you and I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, we are loved for who we are, regardless of performance, regardless of ability, regardless of even our failures, that we're still loved, we are safe in that relationship. And when you feel safe in a relationship, then you don't want to do anything that would damage that relationship. In fact, in a safe relationship, you have the freedom, I have the freedom in that safety to admit my faults, to admit my failures, and in the admission of that to find forgiveness. John says it this way, there is no fear in love. And he talks about fear as that of punishment. God loves us and he wants us to love him. God loves everyone. He wants us to love them as well. Now the idea of fear here, because you've had me, heard me talk about the fear of the Lord. We sing about that. There's a song, we choose the fear of the Lord. And we are to fear the Lord, but there are two different words being used for fear. The one that says fear the Lord is a word that means awe and respect and honor. And there's a, there's a part of afraid with that, but it's just that just standing in awe of someone. But this word fear, we get our word phobia from it. Uh, you know, phobia is sometimes an irrational fear. Years ago, I got a call from a friend working as our secretary. She could not abide spiders at all. So I get this call. Are you coming out to church soon? I'm on my way. I'll be right there. Okay, okay. I said, is there a spider? Yes. So I get to the office, and I walk in. I said, okay, where is it? And she points, and there on the floor, have you ever seen the old pulpit Bibles that churches used to have? The ones are about this wide, this big, and this thick. It's laying on the floor. I go, okay, this, I'm, I'm looking at a tarantula here, you know. So now I'm, uh, I'm a little bit afraid, right? So I go, I, I, you know, pick it up. Good thing I worked out that week. Picked it up and look under it. I can't see a thing. No, it's right there. Finally, I get down on my hands and knees, and there was a little teeny spider that had been just totally obliterated by this book. That's a phobia. We don't have that kind of fear with God. God says, you don't have to be scared of me. You don't have to be afraid. When you live in love and you receive God's love, you don't have to be afraid of punishment in the future. 
God wants us to know that He is a safe place. God wants us to know that when we put our faith in Jesus, yes, there will be challenges in life. Yes, there will be losses and struggles. Yes, we will face disappointment. There is also a deep sense that in the midst of all of that, he says, but I am with you. He's the God that would say in the book of Hebrews, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And he's redeemed us. And one day we will give an account. But even in that time when we stand before him and give an account, he says, you don't need to be frightened because you put your faith in my son. Your sin is paid for. Yes, I want you to own up. I want you to give an account. But the price has been paid. You see, God doesn't want any of us to live in fear of him or live in fear of anything else that comes our way. Perfect love, complete love, the kind of love that God gives us is a love that reminds us we can trust God because he's safe. One day, Charlene and I were out for a walk, and I saw a picture of that trust lived out before us. We walked by a home where the, the dad had taken this swing that's just a big circle with kind of a net in it, and he had hung it up on a tree. And his two little kids, they were, I, I think maybe the oldest one may have been kindergarten and maybe a little bit younger. And they're laying on that, holding on to that. And the dad is taking that swing and he is swinging it. Now here's the, here's the trunk of the tree right here. And the swing comes and whoo, just misses the trunk. Dad had thought through the, the, the structure so that he knew his kids weren't going to hit that trunk. You know what? That never even crossed their mind. They so trusted their dad that they believe dad will do nothing to harm us and we can jump on this swing and hold on and swing and laugh and all. And I thought, that's it. That is that kind of safe love. Love is safe. There's no fear. I can have confidence in the God who initiates love at great cost to himself so I rest in him and I'm safe. I don't need to fear eternity. I don't need to fear what's beyond this life. I don't even need to be afraid of tomorrow. I know I might be facing a difficult challenge ahead, but God is already there, and He's still safe. We finish out. When I was a kid, we'd go to Bluefield, West Virginia, and I'd always like to go to my granny's house, no, my granny's church. Now, my granny was Plymouth Brethren, and so things were done very differently there. But we'd have Sunday school, and then after Sunday school, we'd all meet together, and all the kids were asked to recite a verse. Well, there were two verses that really stand out that you wanted to try to be the first to raise your hand. See, if you raise your hand, you could quote from John 11, Jesus wept. Boom, verse done, boom, you're done. The other one, the second one, was this one, 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. Boom, done. After that, it started getting harder, you know. You had to remember longer, longer verses. <laughs> and yet, that is such an amazing truth. In 1 John four nineteen, we love because He first loved us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Welcoming love is this bridge. And John says this bridge is, a, is an important bridge. John says, okay, you love because God loved us. That's a, that's a reality. And then he says this, whoever 
claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Woo, John, back up. John, whoa, pump the brakes on there. Let's get a little user-friendly here, John. You know, let's, let's, let's soften that. No. And I know what some says. Well, John's only talking about Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe, maybe not, because... Jesus commanded us in Matthew 5, love your enemies. So I look at brother and sister here in general terms. John says, we've not seen, nobody's seen God. But you say you love God. How can you say you love God whom you've not seen and hate your brother and sister that you can see? He says it doesn't work. The point is, welcoming love is to be a bridge. I can say I love God. I can sing songs about loving God. I can tell others that we're to love God. But if I come across and I don't love another person, I have contradicted that entire message. Someone says, well, they're not living a life that's pleasing to God. It's above my pay grade. I have a command. Love my brother and sister. My job isn't to try to determine if they're worthy of love. They're a creature created in the image of God, hence worthy of love. I'm commanded to love them. But they've committed a crime. Well, we have laws and law enforcement to care for that. I'm commanded to love them. But their lifestyle goes against everything the Bible teaches. Above my pay grade, I'm commanded to love them. When I love people, when I show them kindness, when I treat them with dignity and respect as a fellow image bearer, I reflect the love of God in me and I live in obedience to this final command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I don't have an option and neither do you. I don't have an option to choose who I will and won't love. I need to love the people around me. And I know it's hard and I know it's tough. And I know they don't always deserve it. But you know what? I don't either. I'm sometimes not a very lovable guy. You know, and, and God says, but I still love you even though you're not lovable sometimes. That doesn't mean I just wholesale accept everything somebody does. I can treat a person with dignity and respect even if I don't agree with everything in their life. It doesn't mean I don't correct if I have the opportunity. But everything should be done from a standpoint of love. Not that I want to stick it to them or put them down. God does everything from his character of love. And he says, that's who I want you to be. Welcoming love is a bridge. When we live in God's love, we may be the bridge God uses to bring someone to a faith relationship with him. Welcoming love initiates. Welcoming love is costly. Welcoming love is safe. Welcoming love is a bridge. Come home to love this Christmas. Reuben Welch was a chaplain at Point Loma College in California. He published a little book over 40 years ago with a title uh, it was written all based on first john and the title is we really do need each other 
I want to finish this morning by praying the prayer he writes at the end of the chapter entitled, What Does It Mean to Love? Because I think it summarizes everything we've said today quite well. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, help us to learn to show love. Help us to take time to listen, to give our attention to the ones around us, to be more aware of the sensitivities of others. Help us to see people as people, real, live people with feelings and concerns that are just like ours. Help us, Lord, not to judge. And help us not to allow our cynicism to deprive others of joy. Teach us, Lord, to love in deed and in spirit. Amen. Amen.